Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our webinar this morning. I'll just wait a couple of seconds to let everyone get in the room. I can see the attendees increasing. So this morning, this is our fifth webinar um, that we've done for employers. Um, my name's Angie Crush and I'm a partner here at Thomas Mansfield. And today I'm joined by my colleagues, Jenna Eyed and Meredith Hurst. Good morning. Now, Thomas Mansfield, just to give a bit of information about the firm, we're a specialist employment law firm and we work with a wide range of employers, often with HR managers and their teams, but also with business owners where there isn't a separate HR function. Now, today we'll be discussing what can often be a tricky subject for employers, which is hidden disabilities. It's something which will affect almost every employer out there, whether they know it or not. And what we would like to do today is to ensure that you employers out there are aware of this area, know the risks that are facing you, and also know how to respond when faced with an employee with a hidden disability. Now, on the right-hand side of your screen, you'll see some buttons. In the files button, you can find a roadmap of the area we're going to cover in the session, um, and also a list of the cases that we mention. And there's also a, a chat box because um, we want you to ask questions and for this to be interactive. So if you write any questions in there, I'll try to get these answered at an appropriate point in the webinar. Um, there's also an offer button, um, which shows we're again offering a free one hours consultation to any new prospective employer client. So if you would like to take us up on this offer, you can do so by clicking in that box. So first of all, Jenna, can you tell us what are hidden disabilities? Yeah, sure. So by hidden disabilities, we mean conditions that are not immediately apparent. So they include mental health issues such as depression, anxiety and PTSD and conditions such as dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD and autistic spectrum disorder, which all come under the umbrella term of neurodiversity and other conditions such as diabetes, arthritis and, and epilepsy. In relation to autistic spectrum disorder, this itself is an umbrella term and, and it includes Asperger's, which some people refer to as high functioning autism. It's worth noting that there's actually an overlap between mental health issues and neurodivergent conditions. And there's also an overlap between each, each of the neurodivergent conditions. So if an employee has dyslexia, they have a higher chance of having ADHD, for example. And although we are broadly limiting this uh, session to hidden disabilities, the principles we will be discussing will actually be largely applicable to, to all types of disabilities. Thanks. And before we sort of get into the, the nitty gritty law, um, I wanted to publish a poll um, to ask all of the employers that are viewing this morning, um, do you have, or at least are you aware that you've got employees with hidden disabilities? Um, so if you go to the, the poll, you can answer yes, no, or we're not sure, um, just so that we can get an idea of how many of you out there you know, already are dealing with employees that you know have hidden disabilities. So I'll just wait um, a couple of seconds so that you can all answer that poll. Um, at the moment, certainly there's, there's no one viewing this that doesn't have an employee with a hidden disability. Um, the vast majority of you, sort of around about 70%, 69%, um, are all saying, yes, we have employees with hidden disabilities. So that justifies our topic, makes us think we're, we're, we're on the right track. So I'll end that poll now. Um, you know, and not a single person says, no, we haven't got anyone. So that, that's really good to know. So Meredith, um, Apart from the fact that it's Dyslexia Awareness Week and it's World Mental Health Day um, at the weekend, why have we chosen to focus on hidden disabilities in this webinar? Well, Angie, there are a variety of reasons for this. Mental health issues have, as is widely documented, increased due to COVID-19. 
The, the Health Foundation has found that more than two thirds of adults in the UK, that's a staggering 69%, report feeling somewhat or very worried about the effect of COVID-19 on their lives. The most common issues affect fear about the future and feeling stressed or anxious. Now, while some degree of worry is understandably widespread, more severe mental ill health is being experienced by particular groups. Mental health has worsened substantially by over 8% as a result of the pandemic, particularly among the young and women. Also, neurodivergent conditions are generally less well understood and can lead to difficult situations at work. For example, a newly diagnosed dyslexic employee might not know what reasonable adjustments they require, and they may not even understand the condition that they have themselves and may not be able to articulate it and how it affects them. Some employers understandably might fall into the trap of thinking that if an employee doesn't look disabled and they appear fit and healthy, that they don't meet the requirements of the definition and therefore that they don't need help. So it's really important that employers are aware of and are confident when dealing with hidden disabilities in just the same way as they might be with a visible disability. And Jenna, are um, such conditions automatically classed as disabilities under the Equality Act? No, so hidden disabilities such as mental health and neurodivergent conditions do not automatically class as disabilities under the Equality Act. Ultimately, it's a question for the Employment Tribunal to decide, and the Tribunal will be looking at whether the legal definition of a disability is met. So let's take a look at that definition. Um, it's actually set out on the roadmap doc document, which you've hopefully already downloaded. Um, firstly, the employee must have a min mental or physical impairment. Usually this isn't much of an issue. Secondly, the impairment must have a substantial adverse effect, which just means more than minor or trivial, on normal day-to-day -day activities. And that impairment must have long-term effect, which means that it has already lasted 12 months or it's likely to, to last 12 months. Now, neurodivergent individuals are likely to, to meet those tests and therefore class as disabled in relation to the long-term element uh, of the test, as neurodivergent conditions are usually lifelong and, and as a side point, they're also hereditary. Um, this, this, that part isn't, isn't going to be an issue either. But in relation to conditions that might be sporadic, such as depression or, or epilepsy, uh, the long-term element can be trickier and that involves looking at whether the effects are likely to recur beyond 12 months. Employers should be aware that there are some hidden disabilities such as cancer and multiple sclerosis that are automatically classed as disabilities under the Equality Act, but there aren't many of those exceptions. And there are also some conditions that cannot be disabilities, such as a tendency to steal. In practice, of course, employers aren't medical experts, so it is really important for employers to obtain medical advice in relation to any employees who might class as disabled to ensure that the appropriate steps can be taken and to avoid the risk of, of any claims. One word of warning is that employers shouldn't take occupational health reports as gospel if it says that an employee is not disabled, it's important for employers to make up their own mind in this part and not simply rubber stamp occupational health advice. And Meredith, to, to help employers know the sort of things that they might be looking out for here, um, can you give us an idea of how the various hidden disabilities might manifest themselves? Well, in relation to mental health issues such as depression and anxiety, it's important to remember that an employee may be affected both mentally and physically. Mentally, they can experience low mood. They may be emotional, feel guilty or worthless, feel nervous and worry that people are upset with them. And it's most severe. It can manifest itself in suicidal ideation. Physically, examples of symptoms include hair loss, weight loss and nausea. PTSD is a specific type of anxiety disorder which may be developed after, for example, witnessing a traumatic event such as police officers at the Hillsborough disaster and can cause flashbacks where the individual relives the actual event. Now, moving on to neurodivergent conditions such as dyslexia and dyspraxia, which are very similar, they both involve problems not only with 
reading and writing, but also with concentration, organisation and what is called the working memory. So, for example, they may experience difficulties making notes while on a telephone conversation. Dyspraxia has the added difficulty of coordination, which might make someone with dyspraxia appear clumsy or disorganised. ADHD in particular can involve impulsive behaviour and a tendency to be irascible, irritable or impatient. Whereas those with dyslexia, dyspraxia and ADHD may be good at seeing the bigger picture, they may, might find it more difficult to drill down to the finer details. The converse is true for those with autistic spectrum disorder. They struggle with seeing the bigger picture. People with ASD also have a key difficulty in perceiving emotional cues and unwritten rules of social interaction, which might make them appear awkward and so they want to avoid social events, and that can in turn lead to them being stigmatised. In relation to uh, diabetes, that can include frequent need to visit the loo, which employees need to be aware of, weight loss and fatigue. Arthritis can affect the joints and cause muscle wastage. Remember that it can affect the young as well as the older generation. And in terms of epilepsy, we all associate epilepsy with the grand mal fit but it, or seizure, but even a minor seizure can uh, be prevalent and that can consist in looking blankly or staring and you might think well that employee just isn't concentrating or they're daydreaming. Now having listed some of the difficulties it's really important to remind ourselves that neurodivergent employees have great strengths in the workplace. For example they can be highly creative individuals, they can be very hard working and highly entrepreneurial take a look at Lord Sugar, who is a well-documented uh, dyslexic. Now, it's important also to remember that stress can have a dramatic impact on hidden disabilities. It can cause coping mechanisms to break down and make previously competent employees suddenly seem like they're underperforming out of the blue. And one of the other challenges that, that people with hidden disabilities face is the fact that there are various myths out there um, in relation to people with these conditions. Jenna, can you give us a flavour for some of the myths that are out there? Yeah, sure. So um, in relation to neurodiversity, there's a myth that it negatively affects intelligence. It doesn't. There's also a myth that all uh, neurodivergent individuals have the same difficulties as one another, but that's not the case. So it's really important to, to treat every person as an individual. And in relation to mental health conditions, there's a there's a myth there's a myth that people uh, with such conditions are dangerous, um, but most common mental health problems have not got any significant link to violent behaviour. There's also a, a myth that people with mental health conditions can simply pull themselves together, or that they should just get over it. It's it's simply not the case. Um, there's there's also a myth that uh, if somebody comes across as cheerful in their day to day life, that they can't possibly be suffering with depression. And and also that if they're off sick with, say, depression, that they shouldn't be going out exercising or enjoying themselves. Um, but that's not the case. And, and it's actually important for, for their recovery. So um, employers should really try to strive to uh, eradicate these myths through staff training, um, and we'll come on to some other uh, measures later on, but they must also be careful not to adopt any stereotypical assumption, uh, assumptions of any uh, medical conditions. Thanks. And I'm going to do another poll now um, before we start looking at the various employment tribunal claims um, that are the risk areas. Um, I'm going to publish a poll to ask if an employer is completely oblivious to an employee's hidden disability, does that mean the employer is not at risk of any tribunal claims? So basically, if you're not aware that, that someone has a hidden disability, um, you know, are you in the clear or are you still at risk of claims? Um, so let's see who thinks you're not at risk of claims, you are still at risk of claims, or at the moment you're not sure. So looks like pretty much everyone um, well, the vast majority, at least, it's changing as I look at it. It's changing. So um, 
The majority feel you are still at risk of a tribunal claim. Um, some aren't sure. No one, no one's ever prepared to think they're completely in the clear. Um, but uh, sort of seventy-two percent, twenty-seven percent, not sure or think, yeah, actually, perhaps we we still could be liable. So I'll end the poll there. Um, the answer is that they are at risk. Um, as there is one type of discrimination claim where knowledge is completely irrelevant, um, and that's indirect discrimination. So, Meredith, can you explain how an employer might be at risk, even if they were completely unaware of their employee's hidden disability? Yes, well, Angie, as you've said, what we're concerned with here is indirect discrimination. Now, this is where an apparently neutral working practice places a disadvantaged group in this case, those suffering from neurodivergent conditions and the disabled individual themselves at a particular disadvantage. So for example, a blanket requirement to start work at a particular time in the morning. And that was the case in Bevan and Bridgend County Council. Now the employer dismissed the employee who had travel phobia. She was successful in her claim for indirect discrimination, even though the employer was completely unaware of her condition. Now, the tribunal reduced her compensation by 20% for failure to speak up, but it still cost the employer over £50,000. So if an employer has a blanket policy of requiring all employees to start work at a particular time in the morning, for example, that may affect individuals who have depression, who aren't sleeping, who can't wake in the morning. Employers may wonder, is there a defence? Well, the good news is, yes, there is. An employer will have a defence if, one, they can show that the practice applied is a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. For example, a sickness absence policy, which exists to ensure good attendance and workforce stability. The question then, of course, is whether the dismissal is proportionate, which it may not be if the employer hasn't considered and has failed to make reasonable adjustments, which is something that we'll come on to um, in due course. Indeed. And Jenna, if an employee is classed as disabled, what types of claim or what other types of claim could employers be facing? Yeah, so there are five main types of uh, disability discrimination. The first type is direct disability discrimination. And this is where somebody is treated less favourably because they are disabled. And that also applies to perceived disabilities. So if somebody's treated less favourably because they are perceived to have a disability. And it also applies in the case of an association with a disabled person. So for example, if I were to be dismissed because my sister is disabled, that would give rise to, to this type of claim. The second type of claim is indirect uh, disability discrimination, which Meredith has, has just touched upon. That's the type of claim that employers can be liable for, even where they are completely oblivious to an employee's disability. Then we have discrimination arising from a disability and also failures to make reasonable adjustments. Both of, of these claims are key areas and we'll be exploring these in more detail shortly. And the, the fifth type is disability harassment, and that relates to unwanted conduct related to a disability that has the, the purpose or effect of violating their dignity or, or generally creating an intimidating, hostile or, or offensive environment. Uh, for example, calling a, a colleague a bit do lally tap. Um, so, so these five main types are listed on the roadmap document that you should hopefully have downloaded. Um, employers should also be careful about victimising disabled employees who, for example, might have complained about a failure to make reasonable adjustments, as this can lead to another type of claim called victimisation. Employers are also generally prohibited from asking health questions pre-employment, but there are uh, numerous exceptions to that, one of which is for the purposes of determining whether any reasonable adjustments to the interview process are required. Thanks. And it, it reminds me of a, a client um, I dealt with once where their employer had uh, not considered them properly pro promotion because they had a disabled child and there was an assumption that they wouldn't be able to do the travel required for this next step up. Um, and that was sort of a clear case of 
discrimination, associative discrimination. Um, so we we have a question. Um, I don't know who wants to to take it. So um, would menopause be considered as a hidden disability if the symptoms and impact on daily life were severe enough? Bearing in mind that women can have symptoms for up to ten years or more. But it's a good question because I, I mean. I, Definitely menopause is a really, I would say, in the last year to 18 months, we are um, just getting more and more uh, sort of information. It's definitely becoming more um, sort of out there. Employers are considering having, you know, menopause type policies. So it's a good question whether it whether it would actually cross over and uh, potentially be a hidden disability. What are your thoughts? Well, well, I would suggest, say certainly yes if the impairments are adverse. Um, and in this context, we're concerned less with the condition. We're concerned with the, um, the adverse effects of the condition. By corollary, and it has no relevance to menopause, of course, but obesity itself is not classed as a dis disability. But the effects of the obesity, such as uh, fatigue, uh, joint pain, that those sorts of things can uh, mean that that person falls under the definition. So similarly... Menopause could cause fatigue or uh, issues with concentration and that sort of thing. If those impairments are adverse, then I think most certainly yes. And remember, we have to look at the condition without uh, the effect of medication taken into account. So if you're having mm. replacement therapy or something like that, or HRT, I think it's called, um, then you, know, you look at the condition without the, the medication in place. So I think potentially, most certainly yes. Yeah, so that you know that opens up a whole world of, of employees that probably definitely uh, you know are likely to be having a hidden disability, um, you know that you may need to make some adjustments for, and, and we'll go on to those adjustments uh, shortly. First of all, Meredith, one of the key areas um, is discrimination arising from a disability. So, can you explain a bit more about what this is? Certainly, this is where an employer treats someone unfavourably because of something arising in consequence of their disability. So in this context, they, the disabled person doesn't need to compare themselves with someone else by way of a comparator. A typical example would be if you were to dismiss someone because of their sickness absence, let's say, where their sickness absence arose because of their disability. So they have depression, they're off work because of their depression, and you apply your trigger points or dismiss them. There are a couple of defences to this. The first is the same as the defence to indirect discrimination, so namely where the treatment is a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. But remember, it's important to provide evidence to a tribunal of the legitimate aim. You can't just make it up. The second defence is knowledge, or rather the lack of knowledge. By knowledge, we mean actual knowledge. So, for example, if an employee comes to you and tells you that they're considered disabled and provides evidence the context of dyslexia may be an assessment they've had to support that diagnosis or constructive knowledge. In other words, the employer ought to be on notice of a condition where, for example, an employee exhibits certain behaviours or tells their employer that they suspect they may be um, suffering from a particular neurodivergent condition, but there is no formal diagnosis. That could amount to constructive knowledge. So if you don't have knowledge, then you can't be found liable. But as I say, it could be actual or constructive. And Jenna, the, the well-publicised um, Starbucks case that you were involved with has a further example of discrimination arising from a disability. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So uh, Miss Kamalchu in the Starbucks case uh, was a dyslexic supervisor. She made some mistakes in a health and safety notebook that contained, amongst other things, water and fridge temperatures. The mistakes she made included, first of all, taking and recording water temperatures at a sink that didn't actually exist as she'd misread the name of the sink. She secondly recorded some figures with the, the decimal point in the wrong place as she didn't understand decimals due to her dyslexia. And thirdly, uh, some of the times at which she had recorded taking water temperatures were actually after the notebook had been taken away from her. Um, but that, again, arose from her dyslexia as she had difficulty with estimating times. She ended up going through a disciplinary process and was given a final written warning, which was reduced to a first written warning on appeal. 
the employment tribunal held that all of all of that did amount to discrimination arising from a disability. Starbucks in, in the case had not actually argued the justification defense, but the tribunal commented that even if they could have, and it would have been to, to call her to a disciplinary hearing, once she had actually raised her disability and the way in which it impacted upon her to carry out her duties, the disciplinary chair was under a duty to deal with the matter in line with the various policies and to seek advice from occupational health. Thanks. And another one of the key areas, um, as we referred to earlier, um, is about, and, and I think one of the areas that practically employers have to deal with most often is the area of making reasonable adjustments. So Jenna, can you explain a bit more about this duty and also maybe give a couple of examples? Yeah, so um, reasonable adjustments basically are designed to remove barriers for disabled individuals and to put them onto a level playing field to ensure that they can fully participate in the workplace. Um, by their very nature, making reasonable adjustments will involve giving special treatment to disabled individuals. Now, there are three, technically three situations uh, in which the duty to make reasonable adjustments is triggered. The cases we're going to look at mainly focus on the first situation, which involves the duty being triggered where a, a practice like a policy puts a disabled person at a substantial disadvantage compared with non-disabled individuals. So, for example, the, the policy of requiring employees to start work at eight o'clock in the morning that Meredith referred to earlier is, is going to put individuals with uh, depression at a substantial disadvantage compared with those who don't have depression. It's, it's like a barrier. Um, so when the duty is triggered, it means that the employer is obliged to take reasonable, reasonable steps to avoid the, the disadvantage or, or the barrier. So that brings us on to the question of, what steps are reasonable. Now that is a fact sensitive question and there isn't a one size fits all answer. It's always going to depend on the, the individual case. Um, there aren't any factors set out in the Equality Act itself, but the statutory code of practice does have a list of relevant factors that might be taken into account. So they include looking at whether taking any particular step would actually be effective in preventing the disadvantage the practicability of the step, the financial cost of, of making the adjustment and the extent of any disruption caused, the extent of the employer's resources, so how, how big are their pockets, uh, and the availability to the employer of any assistance to help them and also the type of employer. So larger employers will have a higher burden on them compared with the smaller ones. When considering whether a particular adjustment is required by the duty, cost, as I said, is, is one of the factors and it is quite crucial uh, in assessing what's reasonable, but it must be weighed against the other factors. An employer can't necessarily deny an adjustment on the grounds of cost alone. And to be under a duty to, to make reasonable adjustments, an employer must know uh, about not only the disability, but also the barrier that, that the employee faces. Um, so if an employer doesn't know about either of those two things, then it won't actually be under a duty to make any reasonable adjustments. And employers also have to bear in mind that only reasonable adjustments are required. And, and, and an example of where an adjustment wasn't reasonable is in the case of Dyer and London, London Ambulance NHS Trust. Uh, the Employment Appeal Tribunal in this case held that it wasn't reasonable for the busy 909 control room to adopt a no cosmetics policy in the case of an employee who had a potentially life-threatening sensitivity to If the duty to make reasonable adjustments is triggered, it does fall squarely on the employer. There's no defence to the employer, uh, for the employer to say that the employee didn't actually make any suggestions. Thanks, Jenna. Um, just to cut in, uh, someone's uh, said there's some issues with sound. So, 
Um, I don't think there's anything any of us can do. Um, we've controlled everything in in our locations, but if there's planes outside, unfortunately, they won't stop flying for us. So um, I'm not sure what the interference is, but apologies if, if there are some uh, issues with the sound. Um, Meredith, because reasonable adjustments are such a, a big area for employers, and I think it's helpful for them to have as many examples as possible. And um, do you have any other case examples showing perhaps what are, has been reasonable and some that haven't as well? Yes, of course. And I'll also go into some of the suggestions that we might have for uh, adjustments as well. Now, it's important to bear in mind that the duty applies not only to employees, but also applicants. This means that adjustments might need to be made at the recruitment stage. And that was the case in government legal services against Brooks, where GLS failed to make a reasonable adjustment when it refused to allow an applicant with Asperger's to provide short written answers instead of completing an online multiple choice test, which she struggled with. Reasonable adjustments during employment can include a change to working hours. So, for example, in one particular case, it was held that there was no logical reason why an employee couldn't start at 6.30, but had to start at 7.30 instead. And the reason that they wanted to start at 6.30 was because they didn't um, find traveling very easy and wanted to avoid the traffic on the roads. A very important reasonable adjustment in neurodivergent cases can be a reduction in workload. That's a key adjustment because of course, pressure and stress and those sorts of things can exacerbate neurodivergent conditions. It has been held that it was a reasonable adjustment to transfer a disabled employee into an existing vacancy, even though they weren't uh, the best candidate. Now that's quite an unusual case. It wouldn't extend to actually creating a job for somebody. And that was the case of Archibald and Five Council. Adjusting the number of times an employee is allowed to sit an exam can be an adjustment. So for example, in a professional services sector like accountancy or professional services, financial services. And that was the case in bid against KPMG where the two attempts and you're out policy was found to be unlawful in respect of a disabled employee. Now, in the context of neurodiversity, reasonable adjustments might include some of the following speech to text software, such as Dragon, text to speech software. And there is a piece of software called Claro Read, providing a laptop or a tablet if the individual has difficulty writing. Um, a pocket-sized spell checker, dictaphone, noise-cancelling headphones, and extra time for completing tasks. And that doesn't cost the employer anything, well, apart from the time itself. Um, written confirmation of verbal instructions, because, of course, um, some of those with neurodivergent conditions can have difficulty processing uh, verbal instructions. Provision of a quiet place for reading and writing, complex things, perhaps their own office if you have the space, and one-to-one -one dyslexia coaching sessions. Now, it's important that if you do provide technological aids, that you don't just dump them on the individual and say, get on with it. Uh, you need to give them training on how to use the uh, technology. A further really important reasonable adjustment is disability awareness training for colleagues, particularly important in the case of hidden disabilities, which are less well understood. And that can also help with your defence, as Jenna will come on to discuss in a moment. Another thing that an employer might consider is adjusting its policies and procedures. So, for example, in meetings where we have to, in certain contexts, allow the employee to be accompanied, you might give consideration to them bringing um, a family member or support worker rather than uh, a colleague or a trade union rep. In the context of grievance procedures, think about allowing a disabled employee who perhaps struggles with writing uh, to dictate their grievance to a colleague rather than having um, them physically write it themselves if they struggle, as I say, with writing or concentration. In relation to disciplinary hearings, these can be stressful for everybody. Ensure that paperwork is given to the individual in good time and um, so they're not burdened at the last minute. And something very simple, and again, that doesn't cost anything, is typing documents in a clear font such as Calibri and using a larger font size. And it was found by the Employment Tribunal in the Starbucks case that Jenna mentioned the failure to do these very basic things um, amounted to a breach of Starbucks duty and obligation to make reasonable adjustments. Other things you can consider which don't really cost anything, allow disabled employees more time to consider answers in disciplinary hearings. Bear in mind that their coping mechanisms may break down and they may have difficulty communicating, especially 
when under pressure, as I've said. In the case of redundancy processes, bear in mind that some individuals with neurodivergent conditions may struggle with change. And there are many examples of employers in reported authorities being caught out by failing to make adjustments to their processes. And for example, using discriminatory selection criteria, such as including ill health absence as one of the criteria where those ill health absences are disability related. And as I've said, bear in mind that routine can be quite important to many individuals with hidden disabilities, especially autism, and are therefore likely to need more handholding and forewarning of any imminent changes to their contract of employment. So for example, in a restructure. Things that have been held not to be reasonable adjustments, it was held not to be a reasonable adjustment for an employer to have to start over again in relation to a collective redundancy programme where the employee who happened to be dyslexic only informed their employer of that fact at the point at which they were actually selected. It's also been held not to be a reasonable adjustment in a very high level case that went, I think, to the House of Lords at the time, that it was not um, a reasonable adjustment to extend company sick pay beyond the employer's normal policy. Because remember, reasonable adjustments, the policy behind them is to reintegrate people into the workplace. Paying sick pay can be a disincentive to return rather than removing a particular barrier to allowing that employee to return. Employers must implement reasonable adjustments in good time as well, because a failure to do that can of itself amount to a failure to make an adjustment. So as you can see, there are many things you can do in the workplace, and some of them are very basic and don't have to cost anything. For example, giving someone more time to respond to questions, adjusting font size, giving um, forewarning of things. If cost is a concern, then there is funding available from Access to Work. And Jenna will talk to you a little bit more about that later on. Thanks, Meredith. And it's worth mentioning as well that sometimes employers might think and having to you know, make adjustments and the cost. But we're aware of studies that have um, taken place recently that actually have shown that where an employer has a more disability inclusive environment, um, productivity, performance, etc., has gone up um, across the board. Um, similar studies were, were undertaken in relation to women in the workplace um, some time ago and showed that those with more diverse workforces actually do better uh, in terms of productivity and performance, etc. So it's worth bearing that in mind um, when thinking about the downside of you know, cost, etc., in making adjustments. Actually, the, there is the evidence there, and it's coming through now that more studies are being undertaken, that it's worth making those investments in your employees. Jenna, there was a recent case involving uh, sort of bullying and harassment in relation to someone with a hidden disability, um, which, which I think employers might want to bear in mind. Can you talk us through this case? Yeah, sure. It's the case of Hill and Lloyds Bank, and it involves a reasonable adjustment that's, that sounds rather unusual, um, but it, it, it's one that may become more common um, after, after this case uh, has, has been published. So in terms of the, the underlying basic facts, uh, we do come across these facts frequently. Um, Mrs. Hill had reactive depression, which she said was caused by bullying and harassment at work by two of her managers. When she returned to work after a year's sickness absence, she didn't want to work with those managers, and the feeling was mutual on the part of the managers as well. Mrs. Hill was actually based in the Bristol office, whereas the other two were based out of Glasgow and London. But Mrs. Hill was very worried that she might end up working with the her employer Lloyds for a promise that they wouldn't rearrange duties or roles such that she'd have to work with or report to them in in the future and in the event that there was no practical alternative she asked that Lloyds would offer her a severance package equivalent to what she would have received on redundancy. In response Lloyds gave only words of comfort but no absolute guarantees about ensuring that they wouldn't work together 
and that they that they would and they said they also said in relation to the severance package that they wouldn't be able to to offer that um, because her role in that case wouldn't actually be redundant so mrs hill brought a tribunal claim of failures to make reasonable adjustments which she won uh, the employment tribunal found that Lloyd's had a practice of not giving promises in such situations, only words of comfort, and that that practice placed Mrs Hill at a substantial disadvantage because it meant that she suffered a level of anxiety and fear, which an disabled person who had been bullied and harassed would not. So the tip here is for employers to be alert to this possible reasonable adjustment where working relationships have broken down in the workplace involving a disabled employee. And turning to more practical matters, um, Jenna, there's a couple of scenarios that employers are likely to find themselves in. One is where an employee of theirs comes to them and discloses that you know, they are, for example, dyslexic um, and the employer then needs to know what to do. Um, and there's another scenario where the employer suspects that an employee might be suffering from some hidden disability, not, not perhaps sure what, but some of the telltale signs that we discussed earlier are there. Um, what sh that's a, obviously a more difficult one for employers. What should employers do in, in each of these scenarios? So if, if an employee comes to, to an employer and, and discloses their dyslexia, some people are embarrassed about their dyslexia and it might have taken a lot of courage for them to, to make such a disclosure in, in the first place. Um, ask the employee if there are any adjustments that they can think of that they might need. Remember that newly diagnosed dyslexic individuals might be completely clueless about the, the options and might also be reluctant to ask for adjustments as they would feel like they're asking for the world. Their self-esteem might also be quite low at, at that point. So practically speaking, um, ask the employee if they have a copy of their diagnostic report, although it, this isn't strictly necessary um, but the report might set out some possible uh, adjustments that could be made. And bear in mind that there's no such thing as a, a dyslexia register or a certificate, as uh, Starbucks thought in, in that case. Um, ideally, point the employee in the direction of relevant policies, such as a, a dyslexia policy. We'll touch upon documentation a little bit more later on. Um, explain to the employee that the next step will be to obtain a, a workplace needs assessment to see what reasonable adjustments are required. So how do we get a workplace needs assessment? Well, there are two ways. First of all, you could ask the employee to contact Access to Work. That can be done either online or by phone. An assessor will then look to arrange an assessment. If adjustments are recommended, then depending on how long the employee's been employed for, the scheme would also provide funding. The downside is that the assessor from Access to Work may not be a specialist in that particular disability. Alternatively, uh, another way of uh, obtaining a workplace needs assessment is for the employer to arrange for a private specialist to, to come in and, and conduct a workplace assessment. Lexic, which is an organisation mentioned on the roadmap, um, can provide the full range of services from diagnosis through to workplace needs assessments and follow-up services like one-to-one -one coaching. An employer might also want to consider referring the employee to occupational health uh, in case of any further advice that, that can be provided there. And there may be other conditions that need to be borne in mind as well. Communication is key. Keep the employee in the loop at all times and, and listen to their feedback. If you're the line manager, obviously ask the employee if, if they're happy for you to disclose their dyslexia to HR. Um, once you've actually got the workplace needs assessment, which will set out the recommended adjustments, try to be open to ideas. So, for example, um, redesigning a job role, which might actually play to the person's strengths. In, in the different scenario that, that Angie mentioned, where it's actually the employer that spots the signs. So, for example, of, of dyslexia. Um, again, the employer should be very sensitive and should carefully broach the topic. 
in the case of dyslexia and, and perhaps other neurodivergent conditions, there are screening assessments available online, which might be a useful starting point. Um, bear in mind that a GP cannot diagnose uh, dyslexia. Educational or occupational psychologists are the relevant specialists there. Thanks. And I mean, with hidden disabilities, as with other disabilities, um, it can be a big step for employees to come forward. They might be worried about disclosing their disability, worried, you know, because of the myths, because of the stigma that still attaches to, to some of these things. Um, what One way that employers can uh, make it more likely that employees feel they can come forward is to make their business more disability inclusive. Now, do you have any guidance on the sorts of things that employers uh, listening might be able to do to ensure their business is disability inclusive and employees feel they can come forward uh, and get the support that they need to make them the best employee they can be? Yes, so there are it will take time and an involved culture. My top tips for employers include signing up to the Disability Confident Government Scheme if you haven't already. There's a lot of helpful information about that on the government website. Signing up for an employee assistance programme, that can be a further avenue of support for employees uh, and include access to counselling as well. Um, depending on the size of the business, you may want to, to set up a, a diversity and inclusion team if you haven't already got one, um, or at least a disability champion who uh, a disabled employee might be more confident or comfortable in approaching. Um, employers, uh, in the case of uh, employees who have had sickness absence, should, should make sure that they hold return to work meetings as a matter of course. Uh, because that's a, a useful opportunity to, to for, for issues to be flagged up and, and to be dealt with appropriately. Now, in terms of documentation, in addition to uh, an equal opportunities policy, which should of should of course be regularly reviewed, employers could implement, uh, for example, a, a hidden disabilities policy and even a specific policy on neurodivergent conditions. Um, check whether the disciplinary and capability procedures that are in place refer to disabilities. You can actually use these procedures as a way of ensuring that line managers consider whether any issues like performance or disciplinary issues might in fact actually arise from a hidden disability and, and whether it's appropriate to, to jump straight into the procedures in the first place. Um, in terms of documentation, you could also check whether the business house style is dyslexia friendly. So, for example, it's best to use font size 12 and above and a font such as Calibri. Don't forget to also uh, adjust the font of out of office messages and also look at the font on uh, the intranet and, and the company website as well. So it's accessible to, to customers. Try to avoid the use of italics, which, which aren't uh, terribly um, accessible. Employers should also think about whether any training they provide internally to staff is accessible. Uh, try to ensure that um, the training materials are provided in various formats. So, for example, videos with, with written notes. Don't just stick to, to the bog standard PowerPoint presentation. Um, it's also really important not only to, to implement equal opportunity training, for all staff, but also refresher training and to keep central records of this. One reasonable adjustment mentioned earlier is disability awareness training, but employers might want to go ahead with rolling that out anyway um, without actually waiting for it to be recommended. And of course, employees should be made aware of, of the policies and, and their implications, which, which can be done through training. Now, the tips I've, I've just gone through will hopefully not only help to make businesses more disability inclusive, but they'll also help to put them in the best position possible uh, to use what's called the reasonable steps defence, which is relevant to cases of discrimination um, where you've, you've got one employee who has discriminated against another. So, for example, if a manager 
were to uh, subject a colleague to disability harassment, but the company itself has taken all reasonable steps to prevent the discrimination in the first place, the company might be let off the hook in those circumstances. In the Starbucks case, the company tried to use the reasonable steps defence in relation to Ms. Kumulchu's sex discrimination claim, but the tribunal wouldn't allow it. Quite shockingly, the district manager who had responsibility for approximately 200 people last received equal opportunity training in it was it was basically nine years before the tribunal hearing took place and the the manager hadn't received any refresher training since then uh, so as I'm sure you would imagine the tribunal took a very dim view of that thanks Jenna um it's that, uh, that training is definitely something we can help you with both general equal opportunities training and refresher training and um, so that you don't of the tribunal. But also we can include an emphasis on hidden disabilities um, and this particular area if you'd like. And we can also provide you with a hidden disabilities policy that's tailored to your business, um, uh, covering areas such as workplace needs assessment, practical guidance for managers um, and HR on how to deal with the issues in the workplace and also signposting employees, you know, who they should go to to get support in this area. Um, and, and having all of these things in place is likely to make it um, far more likely that, um, you know, that you have an inclusive workforce. Um, the We've got a couple of messages that I should just um, deal with. A, People couldn't see the roadmap. Um, I've made sure that that's published now. So you should definitely be able to um, find the um, the roadmap now. And then a couple of people are saying they haven't got sound or it's frozen. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what we can do about this because we've all got network cables into our browsers at home, into our hubs at home um so yeah so i don't know and do we leave and reconnect if everyone could just put a message to say can they hear us um and we'll see if if everyone can't hear us and if it's if it's your end then you might have to leave and reconnect yeah because i think i think um i mean yeah we're, we're cutting out so um you know, a lot of what jenna's been saying would cut out and um, what you just okay. said as well. It sounds as though most people are here, so we'll, we'll plough on. Um, okay. As I was saying, um, you know, training it, you know, is really important and we can definitely help you in this area. So, Jenny, we've covered what employers can do. Um, any particular tips about what not to do? Yes. So um, in in my experience, when somebody has been trying to refer to somebody without dyslexia, unfortunately, I've heard them referred to as normal, um, which is understandably uh, rather offensive. So someone who isn't dyslexic is simply non-dyslexic. And another useful term is neurotypical, uh, which can refer to somebody who isn't uh, dyslexic, dyspraxic, etc. Um, so just bear bear those tips in mind. Um, and although this isn't, of course, so much of an issue in the pandemic, employers should avoid insisting on face to face meetings and, and welfare checks in relation to employees who are off sick, uh, for example, with, with depression. Um, if, if an employee who is off sick does refuse to attend a meeting, uh, citing their mental health issues, then employers should have an open mind. Um, and think about the practical alternatives such as a Zoom meeting or, or a basic telephone call, which might actually be less stressful. Um, and it might be that the employee feels unable to meet with a particular person, um, but they might be able to meet with an alternative person. Um, and then something else to avoid as well is, is to avoid treating the implementation of adjustments as, a, as just a box ticking exercise. 
Uh, so, for example, if an employer is going to provide a laptop as a reasonable adjustment, the employer will, of course, need to make sure that it actually connects up to all of the relevant systems. Otherwise, of course, it would be rendered uh, relatively useless. Something else to avoid um, that came up in a case I, I know about um, involved an employee who disclosed his dyslexia to his line manager. And the line manager's response was, well, can you hold a pen and can you read the text from this computer screen? And he says, OK, then, and moved on. Um, so that's that's definitely not how to do it. And Jenna, do you have any thoughts about um, how COVID has been a particular challenge for people with hidden disabilities? Meredith mentioned it at the start, but what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, so, I mean, I would say that the COVID pandemic has, has, had, a, has had a mixed impact on, on individuals with hidden disabilities. Uh, as we've already mentioned, mental health issues have sadly increased. Um, it should be noted that employers are likely to find it harder now to refuse employees' requests to work from home um, if this has actually been working well during the pandemic. Um, and in relation to neurodivergent individuals, um, although they may have fewer distractions at home compared with, for example, an, an open plan office, they might be struggling with, for example, a lack of routine and um, and, and supervision as well. So. It's, it's really important to, to keep in touch with, with your, your, your employees and um, in particular to think about ways of maybe providing some kind of structure to, to the day to, to help them. Thanks. And now just before we move on to the, the cost of getting it wrong, um, and just to make sure everyone's still awake, uh, I'm going to publish a poll to ask, um, what is the average compensation for a disability discrimination case, this is in the, the last um, year's results that are out. So do you think the average award is £6,378, £28,371 or £51,809? So I'll give you a couple of seconds to, to answer what you think is the correct one there. No one's going for the lower award so everyone's clearly aware that these things can be very costly um, and about two-thirds think 28,000 well actually uh, sort of 53 so oh, it was pretty even now between the, the last two um, I'll end the poll now because we're getting towards the end of our time and um, the correct answer was B 28,371 pounds the highest award last year, just out of interest, was 460 or just over £416,000. Um, Meredith, what are the consequences of not getting it right, not dealing appropriately with employees with hidden disabilities? Well, as you've just demonstrated there, Angie, the worst case scenario, of course, is that getting it wrong can be very expensive. You know, employees can, individuals can bring claims um, and it can involve unlimited compensation being awarded. Now, tribunal claims are also very time consuming and, and seriously stressful. One of our employment tribunal clients, um, sorry, employer clients recently um, attended a tribunal hearing and told us that the alarm on his Apple Watch had gone off to say that his heart rate was so high he should have been having a heart attack. Thankfully, he wasn't. But that just shows that it's not just stressful for the person bringing the claim, but for the management team, for everybody there as witnesses. The main types of compensation for loss of earnings um, oh, sorry, the main types of compensation, I should say, are for loss of earnings and injury to feelings. Um, as I say, compensation for loss of earnings is uncapped. Injury to feelings ranges from between £900 and £45,000. That's sort of the, the, the range. Also, an employee can claim um, personal injury arising out of discrimination. For example, if the, the, the way in which they were dismissed exacerbates their depression and causes them to suffer some sort of injury as a result of it. So there are some reasons to, to think more about this. Thank you, Meredith. Um, and um, I think we've done our best to answer the, the couple of questions that we had. Um, we haven't had that many questions today, but um, if you have any, by all means, contact us after the webinar or take us up on the hours free consultation. It's in the office section 
you can go to there and register now for that free consultation. Um, we'd, we'd love to have a chat with you and learn more about your business. Um, our contact details are on the invite to this webinar and also at our website, www.thomasmansfield.com. And also, please do give us some feedback and um, do the star rating that you get um, when, when you uh, log out of this webinar. Um, next month's uh, webinar is on the topic of enforcing post-termination restrictive covenants and also protecting your business's confidential information, which is an area that uh, you know does cause a lot of problems for employers. Um, and we're going to explain why it's so important that you um, don't have a one-size-fits-all policy and you actually tailor your restrictions to your particular business. Um, one question that we had was, do you think most companies settle before going to court? Uh, I don't know about you two, but I would say absolutely most companies will settle before going to court. Very few of our um, cases will go to court. Obviously, when we're advising employers, our aim is always to never get to court or actually never be in a position where you, you even have to worry about a claim being made in the first place. That's certainly the best position to be in. I mean, and if you, I mean, if you can contest disability, you know, there'll always be a preliminary hearing at a tribunal where the tribunal asks the respondent to either um, concede or deny disability. And there'll be a direction to disclose evidence by the claimant. Um, you know, so you can play a practical game if you want. But, you know, they can be costly if you go all the way. OK, so thank you all for tuning in and we'll hopefully see you next month. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.